Welcome to Park Ave Baptist Church Podcast. A weekly broadcast of our Sunday sermon. I'm Himra Chanel, pastor of community engagement and stewardship. And I'm Darcy Jarrett, pastor of worship, advocacy, and arts. Park Ave is a bold, inclusive, and creative community where everyone is welcome. We uplift voices and identities that are marginalized elsewhere. We affirm all ethnicities, racial identities, ages, socioeconomic groups, gender identities, and sexual orientations because we hold to a theology that refuses to other anyone. At Park Ave, our leadership model is non-hierarchical. And we practice an open pulpit where you will hear a multiplicity of theologically trained voices from different backgrounds and social locations. We don't just preach and talk about deconstructing systems and structures of power. We We practice practice it. Through this podcast, we hope you will be inspired, encouraged, and challenged. Listen Listen with with us now. Park Avenue Baptist Church, in response to COVID-19, has suspended in-person worship, but that can't stop us. What you'll hear on this podcast is a recording of our online worship, which happens each Sunday at 10 a.m. Join us through our Facebook, at Park Ave Baptist, or our Instagram, at Park Ave Baptist. We hope that you stay safe in these difficult times. All right, we'll be moving to our biblical reading. Ms. Rice Henry, you're up. Here now, reading from Mark 9, 33 through 47. What were you arguing about during the journey, Jesus asked. They didn't respond since on the way that they had been debating with each other about who was the greatest. He sat down, called the 12, and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be least of all and the servant of all. Jesus reached for a little child, placed him among the 12, and embraced him. Then he said, whoever welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me isn't actually welcoming me, but rather the one who sent me. John said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone throwing demons out in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Jesus replied, don't stop him. No one who does powerful acts in my name can quickly turn around and curse me. Whoever isn't against us is for us. I assure you that whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will certainly be rewarded. As for whoever causes these little ones who believe in me to trip and fall into sin, it would be better for them to have a huge stone hung around their necks and to be thrown into the lake. If your hand causes you to believe you are better than others, chop it off. It's better for you to enter into life crippled than to go away with two hands into the fire of hell, which can't be put out. If your foot causes you to believe you are better than others, chop it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to be thrown into hell with two feet. If your eye causes you to believe you are better than others, tear it out. It's better for you to enter God's kingdom with one eye than to be thrown into hell with two. The word of God for the people of God. Picture this. You live in a land so alive, so alive with texture and color, you never cease to wonder at the movement of the clouds. A land that reflects your own cycles in hers, the moon, the seasons. You live in a world that reveals to you her secrets 
in spans of time and layers of a shell that open to reveal a delicious walnut that nourishes and sustains while teaching. Each tree where you live is like a ladder climbing to the stars, the greatest teachers you've ever known, showing you what it means to live in solidarity, how to act collectively, and when to bring your gifts to bear. This land, this place, this world is the very manifestation of divinity for you. And it speaks its truths to you, and you can hear its language in every breeze. You live in a place that birthed you from its very core, with mud in your bones and red clay in your veins, a land where every stone is a teacher that gives you perspective on time never ending, nonlinear, universal. I wanted us to start with this visualization this morning. I think it's a one of the ways that we can begin to shift the narrative, to imagine differently, to engage our fantastical, creative minds, one that embodies creation-based theologies, a visualization that allows just a window into ways of being that are ancient and center creation instead of centering power, hierarchy, all of these created by beings. So that's my goal today, to portray some of the ways that hierarchy can be changed, can be shifted, and some of the ways that hierarchy has gotten us where we are today, has troubled our Christian theology, has muddied the waters throughout history. So let's talk about this concept of decolonization, what we mean when we take on this huge topic of decolonizing church. So like a good Baptist, I offer my title this morning. Non-hierarchical faith. God was never in that box. Will y'all pray with me as we begin? Creatrix, you made the whole of the world, creation, the land first, and animals, and then came your beloved human creation from dust and bone. God, sustain us now. Sweet Lord, sustain us. Reorient us. Point us toward your purpose. Show us your presence. Sweet Lord, sustain us. Open our eyes to these huge misconceptions and the possibility in these omissions of how we can see you again, your presence. Help us revere and thank the first peoples of this great land, understanding that what they knew was wisdom what they know is wisdom and how to care for your first gift to your people, creation. We give thanks, as we said, to the Muscogee, to the Creek, the first peoples of this land. We want to learn how to offer this respect 
to those ancestors who live on, to those ancestors who might be buried here, to those peoples who now find themselves in places like Tulsa. We are thankful for the gifts. Creator God, let us be of good mind. With thankful respect in our hearts, we pray your name, your son, the peacemaker, and the sacred spirit. Amen. This sermon series, Decolonized Church, begins this week. The week before Indigenous Peoples Month begins, but it is meant to address the ways that our church today carries and perpetuates what Mark Charles, theologian and Diné tribe member, calls a dysfunctional theological imagination, a way of framing our beliefs whose very foundation sits upon this hierarchy of unjust assumptions decolonized church. It's this bold statement and a term that's becoming rather popular. And so I want to engage with what these potential meanings are and evolving concepts. I would be remiss if I didn't mention Drs. Tuck and Yang's seminal article of decolonialist studies entitled Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. So as we reach toward other meanings, I want to root us in the definition that they give of settler colonialism. And this is a type of land acquisition specifically for the purpose of deriving profit from this stolen land. And unsurprisingly, they argue decolonization isn't decolonization unless it involves land reparations. So Let's name that giving back the land is the only way to actually decolonize. So we read these articles and we have these aspirations and these grand goals and we find ourselves where we are, entrenched in the theological imagination, rooted in a faith that started from this place of colonization or at least it went there early in its creation. Another reading that I would recommend once we start talking about decolonialist studies is an article called, Do Not Decolonize If You're Not Decolonizing. So we're hearing this word a lot, but what does that mean? It means if you're not ready to undo ways of being that are so entrenched in our structures, then don't start it. And so I do think Park Avenue is on this journey. I do think Park Avenue in its ways of looking at leadership, non-hierarchical models, shared pulpit, I do think we are decolonizing. So we undertake this journey faithfully. And we know we're going to fall short. The ultimate call of Decolonizing is the rematriatization of lands back to tribes from whom it was stolen. So we know that we need to do some more work around this. We are not giving back land. We are dedicating space. We are sharing space. We are creating sites of memory and healing. And this is our journey. So what I want us to do this morning is look at 
the atmosphere around us. But how do we do that, right? It's like trying to point out the water that the tea of Christianity is steeped in. It's all around us. We're going to be talking today about the doctrine of discovery, right? We're changing the narrative and talking about the doctrine of discovery, which became entrenched in U.S. constitutional law. So religious law became constitutional law in the United States. And this is what Mark Charles points to, the doctrine of discovery that is the root and the reason for Christianity's dysfunctional theological imagination. The Christian way of looking at the world, so sullied by the interests of earning capital, gaining material wealth, amassing possessions, based on an economy of scarcity, that the very air we breathe is tainted. This is how Christians rationalize so many atrocities. I hear this conversation over and over. How can Christians not react to children missing their families, families never being reunited? How can Christians have rationalized so many terrible atrocities from the Crusades to forced migration to settler colonialism to chattel slavery to Jim Crow to white supremacist mentalities to migrant imprisonment to internment camps? And there is so much more that we could say. So the doctrine, what is the doctrine of discovery? It's this series of papal bulls that were issued in the 15th century by the Catholic Church to allow European Christians to claim territory under this guise of discovering land. And so we know that these lands were inhabited by indigenous peoples, but in the name of converting non-believers, the church issues this doctrine, right? This document essentially claims that the lands inhabited by non-Christian indigenous folks is empty. It's called terra nullis, or empty land. And this is the rationalization that the land is empty because people aren't Christian, but also because the land is not being used productively. That's definitely an economic term. Productive land produces crops. Productive land is being mined for precious metals or materials. Productive land is not empty land. Land that is obviously not empty is deemed empty because the way of being of the people that live there is different. So these mostly white European settlers just say that the land is not productive enough. So they take it. This is the root of dysfunction. Where can we talk about and find the productivity of the forest? Is it in the fresh air in our lungs? How can we measure the value of nonlinear time and age-old wisdom and shifting landscapes? If productivity is a measure of beauty, <laughs> then what is the productivity of a sunset? We will always lose if we think about the rhythm and the crunch of the falling leaves under our feet as anything less than a song. It'll just be a burden, something in our way. This land, this place, 
this world can never be the very manifestation of divinity for us if we try to measure it through the lens of productivity. It is capitalism that values productivity, not our God of creation. The doctrine of discovery places settlers above all others. That is not what our Savior says, even in this scripture today, how you treat a child. A child is me. I am a child. It is capitalism that looks at the bottom line, not our God incarnate who sought the one lost sheep over and above the 99. That doesn't make good business sense. The church doctrine calls the way of life that lives in harmony with the land invalid. Our God created interdependent dynamic relationships between all creation. It's industry that values efficiency over connection, not the Jesus, the black Messiah that we know who builds connections and breaks all chains and hierarchies. This is the image that we perceive in our pericope today, the breaking of hierarchical ways of thinking. I think there's a lot of opportunity to root out dysfunctional theological imagination. And we are going to focus on this way that Jesus is attempting to teach the disciples in Mark to reject these earthly hierarchies. And so let's look at the text. Jesus asks them, what were you arguing about? And he's totally calling them out in this moment. He's asking this because he knows that they are talking about who is the greatest among them. <laughs> They're literally talking about who will be second to Jesus in heaven. So they don't respond, right? They're busted. They kind of, I imagine, look, look at each other. And instead, Jesus responds, whoever wants to be first must be the least of all and the servant of all. I can picture them like kind of giving the side eye and like, John, you talk too loud. And this is a really serious moment. He's teaching them right now. So Jesus continues, whoever welcomes one of these children welcomes me. He's pointing to the children. And I love that this affirms Jesus's love for our little people in the world. Essentially, he's using them as an example, though, because he's picking out the person with the least control over their life, the least amount of power, a child, and saying, this person is as important as everyone else. This person is me. This person is you. I need to keep that in mind, I think. Um, and so we see these hierarchical ways of thinking being taken down. The next verse kind of seems like this shift, but I think it's getting at the same root, right? If we, if we view it through this lens of hierarchy, then I think these sections go together. So then John says to Jesus, we saw someone performing miracles and exorcism, exercising demons like you do, and we try to stop him, but he wasn't following us. What do you think Jesus says? Of course, Jesus says, don't try to stop him. I think we get caught up maybe in that moment on this, whoever's not for us, is, whoever's not against us is for us moment. And I think that might be our colonial lens, right? We're looking at teams and rather than thinking about collaboration, I think Jesus is talking about community collaboration across lines of difference. 
whoever is not with us, not against us, is for us. So why do we want to yield power over this man? Why do we want to bring him and make him do what we do? Jesus, he's not interested in bringing this other miracle worker into line. He's, again, teaching the disciples that control, power over this other person is not the goal. Collaboration, non-hierarchical ways of being. Jesus is not phased. He says, great, we're all on the same team. Whoever does miracles in the name of God is great, right? Jesus is, is not interested. He's not a franchise wanting a kickback. He's essentially telling the disciples again that power doesn't matter. Power is not the goal. So Jesus again brings up children in this last part, which I know, I know, right? There's a lot of limb cutting off and a lot of talk about hell in this last part, and it gets confusing, right? And I get focused on the wrong parts. So Jesus again brings up children. And I think he might as well be talking about anyone in a minoritized position in this hierarchical system, right? This time he's defending those who are younger or you could say those who are marginalized or those who are disabled or those who are minoritized or those who are silenced or those who suffer gender bias or those in general who have less power in this hierarchy. This is who he is defending in this moment. And this is arguably some of the most punitive words that we hear Jesus say. And it's a little scary, right? You're talking about, again, gouging eyes out and hell, but if anyone causes this person to stumble, there will be hell to pay. And literally hell. He, I mean, you can tell Jesus is so angry in this moment. And I use this interpretation that was offered by Mark Charles in his book, An Unsettling Truth. And I, I think it hits at the root of what Jesus is really talking about. We've heard the word sin used in this language, in this pericope. We've heard falling or stumbling, but Jesus is talking about the sin of placing yourself above another, the sin of creating hierarchy. So here's the translation. If your hand causes you to believe you are better than others, chop it off. For it is better for you to live life crippled than to go in a way to go away with two hands into the fire of hell who which can't be put out so if your foot causes you to to think you are better than others chop it off if your eye causes you to believe you are better than others tear it out this is harsh language right but this is how serious jesus is about not placing yourself above another not placing yourself in a position to look down on anyone. Jesus is the least of us and all of us. Those of us who are minoritized, those of us who are, have no voice, have a voice with Jesus. This is an illustration of another way of being. This interpretation, I think, has been obscured, obscured by viewing it through our dysfunctional theological imagination. So we've only seen, we haven't seen these new systems, perhaps. We've only been shown systems that either place someone above, adjacent, or below us, right? This simplistic positioning, God above, earth and plants and animals below, humans in the middle. 
this isn't how we find ourselves in in our imaginations in our best selves this way of dismantling and learning new liberative perspectives takes work it's not simply deconstructing a theology that has harmed us but instead we need to ask what are the paradigm the paradigms that jesus is illustrating what does jesus advocate what is jesus for why is the ultimate theological imagination projecting an image where no one person is better than another we need to take that seriously and we see this example over and over again jesus not taking power jesus elevating those at the bottom jesus not acting in the way one might think this messiah was going to act i believe this is a faithful practice one that can be done in so many areas of our lives, in all of our theology, all of the ways that we live in communication and communion with each other and God, from how we organize ourselves to our outlook of the world. We have to dig deep and uproot these inbred assumptions, assumptions that can be traced back to this document, right? This doctrine that placed the priority of Christians on conversion and established that the want of land and money and power was as important to the church as what Jesus says. The nuanced lessons of non-hierarchy are throughout the text and through our dysfunctional lens, this empire goal of Christianity became conversion evangelism and taking from the land and the at the expense of those who were here so could knowing more about this doctrine be the key to unlocking our questions the questions we are asking ourselves the questions about this election the questions about our very character as people the questions about how we claim to not see oppression, or maybe we really don't because we haven't seen so much. So if we hear the dog whistles and we smell it in the air, we taste it in the water, we need to continue to look at it. Because how can we not see it once our eyes are opened and the veil is drawn back? We can't take it back. We can't look and, and think anything else. And I say this, and I want to call myself out in this and say this work continues and needs to continue. I think I've gotten used to it as well. And I have to continue to root out these ways that have brought, that have been me buying into this colonial mindset. And, you know, on this journey, I, I've preached this topic before about the doctrine of discovery and the roots of this um, of this theology in our Western Christianity, and I still thought during the sermon when we were creating the sermon series that I would preach an Old Testament story. I'm interested in the Old Testament. I feel called toward this First Testament stories, which to me are a story of people without land and identity seeking a place, a place to root themselves 
And God is guiding them on this journey and trying to get them to find their identity in God and the land. And so last year, during Indigenous Peoples Month, I used scripture from Deuteronomy 27. And I love this scripture, partly because Howard Thurman wrote about it, and partly because I thought it was such a great illustration about how we are supposed to be in borrowed land, in gifted land, right? The prescription of how to be just. But upon reading Mark Charles and um, Sujan Ra's book, An Unsettling Truth, I realized that, in fact, making that comparison, right? The comparison between the Israelites and the European white settlers was feeding into this dysfunctional theology. Stay with me. I'm going to explain it a little bit more. So the scripture is a warning to not move your neighbor's boundary stone. And last year, I drew out the directions from God to the people who came into the land. And I'm saying, we are not treating the land as God prescribed. We have taken advantage of this land was once called Turtle Island and is still called Turtle Island by some, were not following God's directions. But seeing themselves, white settlers, European settlers, seeing themselves as analogous with the Israelites contributed and was a, one of the foundational elements of this narrative of manifest destiny. You know, we've all heard of this, right? Manifest destiny, we can think about it like doctrine of discovery, the American colonizer version. It's developed into what is the American dream. This grand narrative that is so charismatic and it tells us we can be individualistic. It tells us we can each have our, everything we want in the world. We can accumulate, we can pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and it judges us if we don't, right? This dream depends on the comparison of these ancient oppressed peoples and those European settlers, land thirsty, wealth thirsty, who saw themselves as founding the new Israel. And this is a powerful narrative. They were God's chosen people, and they were destined to be here. And doesn't that sound grating on my ears now, this comparison to decolonize, truly my thinking would, would be to never make that comparison, to never allow the narrative to be controlled by a European settler who claims to be acting in God's will by taking land. To decolonize my interpretation would be to seek out to not seek out, I'm sorry, this direct comparison, but instead to seek out new paradigms. And eco-womanism uplifts ways of being centered in collectivism. And we see these elements in the Bible, collaboration, reaching towards scripture for examples of how to live in community, in communion with the earth, with creation. It's dysfunctional shade that leads to the blatant biblical misinterpretations that when we read about stewardship, stewardship, the creation narratives, somehow we translate that in our minds to this land is mine. 
mine to do with what I will, to strip, to burn, to wield to my will. Instead, the dismantling egalitarian theology looks at creation and the creation narratives and marvels at intelligent design. It's seeking to learn lessons from the co-creation and symbiotic natural relationships that encourage life. This is what the God of life, the God of creation wants for us to flourish, to find that place that speaks to our heart. But in order to dig out this dysfunctional theological imagination, we need to do more than simply not move our neighbor's boundary stone or simply look at the text and say, this is how we've done it wrong. We need to seek out what we've done right. And I think this is our spiritual practice that can dismantle our colonizer theology and uplift life-giving narratives. What the doctrine of discovery affirms is that an industry-based economic farming model and precious metals and resource harvesting way of life is the proper use of land. And this communicates at its root that the European model of organization of society is best. With this document, we decimated an entire country. So we can move from this dysfunctional theological imagination toward divested communities, communities that turn away from colonial models of being. There's no correct way to answer this question or one way to answer this question. We can look toward eco-womanism, liberative pedagogies, earth-centered learning, and although there is no way to make this whole journey today, right now, we can lean into the longer nonlinear paradigms of time that prioritize this moment and realize that this moment is all moments and time can be measured by trees. And although there is not one place to go directly from here, we can take comfort in imagining the places we will build the land that loves us and holds us and cares for us from whom we came. We can take comfort in imagining the places we will build, the land that holds us like this visualization. We can create affirmations of our relationship to earth and to the divine together. So say to yourself, I come from a land that birthed me from its very core with mud in my bones and red clay in my veins, a land where every stone is my teacher and it offers me a perspective on time, never ending, unfolding and overlapping. There is power in our words and prayers, so I pray, I pray and I imagine, I turn again to poetry, particularly if we're talking about the narrative, the journey, the attempted genocide of Native peoples, poetry is, is so meaningful. One of the ways that the United States government and other North American governments tried to subdue Native peoples was to, to get them to forget their Native language. So particularly poetry to Joy Harjo, she writes about it. Her poetic voice is that of the ancient Muscogee. Her people in Tulsa and their ancestors were here in Georgia. Poetry, this nonlinear revolutionary language 
can allow us to re-educate ourselves out of colonial ways of thinking. Poetry is a revolution, a coming home in many ways. So hear this prayer and poem called Eagle Poem. To pray you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know that there is more that you can't see and can't hear and can't know except in moments steadily growing in languages that aren't always sound, but circles of motion, like an eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River circled in the blue sky, in wind swept our hearts clean. With sacred wings we see, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion, like an eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to worship with us in person, our services are on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m.-ish. We are at 486 Park Ave in Southeast Atlanta, across the street from Grant Park, at the corner of Park Ave and Sydney Street. To find out more about us or get in touch, visit our website at parkavebaptist.com. Now go into a world that is too often unjust. Knowing that the God that created you loves you. And empowers you to love boldly, live inclusively, and serve creatively. Creatively.